Hi, everybody. Hey, as you're um, grabbing your seats, uh, be kind to one another. We've still got folks coming in. I know we've got our theater open as well, by the way. Hello to everybody in the theater and watching online, but we've still got folks coming in. So, it, you know, it's Easter. Be nice to each other. There's some seats right here that nobody ever wants to sit in because it's too close to me. Some seats right here as well. So, uh, yeah, just be kind to one another. Hey, um, happy Easter, you guys. So glad you're here. If we've never met, my name's Jay. I'm a part of the team here at Westgate, and uh, this, is, um, this is the one Sunday out of the year when I wear a blazer. So you came on a good day, and <clears throat> that's right. I did, it, I did it for that, for your applause and adulation to prop up my fragile insecurity. So thank you. Uh, okay, let's begin here. I want to show you the image of a man. This is a man named Gregor McGregor. What a name. Incredible. Gregor McGregor was a decorated officer at a very early age in the British Army. And in the year 1811, McGregor sails to Venezuela, where he fights and leads the Venezuelan military in their battle for independence against Spain. And because of his heroics, the nation of Venezuela gives him a gift. And they give him the gift of land. They give him a region, a beautiful, lush, prime real estate region in Venezuela called Poye. And so eventually, McGregor makes his way back to Europe, and he begins telling everybody about this land that Venezuela has given him called Poye, how beautiful it is, how lush it is, teeming with life and potential. And soon enough, really wealthy British and French investors start asking McGregor if he would sell chunks of real estate in Poye. He says, okay, yeah, I'm a generous man. I'll sell you some real estate. So wealthy British and French investors begin to give McGregor money to buy land in Poye. Long story short, over the course of several years, McGregor makes the modern day equivalent of more than 3 billion US dollars selling land in Poye. And then eventually in the years 1822 and 1823, the first set of investors and their friends and family get on ships, they sail the Atlantic to lay eyes on the land that they have purchased. They arrive in Poye, Venezuela, and they realize that Poye is not a lush prime real estate land, it's an uninhabitable jungle. Beyond that, they come to realize McGregor doesn't actually own Poye. He had pulled the greatest con in human history, more than three billion US dollars. Now, this, has, this story of McGregor has gone down literally as one of the greatest cons in, like ever, one of the greatest hoaxes ever, but it is not the greatest con. The greatest con is the fact that hundreds of us are sitting in this room and more than two billion people around the world today are gathering to sing and to listen and to remember and celebrate the story of a first century Jewish rabbi who lived died, and some people claim came back to life. Second place is not even close, you guys. This is the greatest hoax in history. More than two billion people today think that a dead rabbi came back to life. It is either the greatest con in human history or it's true. There is no in-between. 
Easter is more than pastel-colored eggs and bunnies. Easter is a confrontation. It confronts what we think we know about how the world works. It compels us to move closer or further. There is no standing still when it comes to Easter. It's either the greatest con in history or this day is the fulcrum of human history. If a man truly came and proclaimed that he was the savior of the world and then died and then came back to life, if that story is true, then everything changes. Let me read for you what a handful of first century historians said about Jesus. Now, I want you to know these are non-Christian historians. Non-Christian historians who lived within a lifetime or two of Jesus himself said these things about him. Tacitus, who was a first century Roman senator and historian, he said Christ had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of Pontius Pilate and the pernicious superstition, he's talking about the resurrection, was checked for a moment only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, but in the capital itself, Rome. A uh, second century Roman governor and writer, Pliny the Younger, you all know him as the name of a triple IPA, but he was actually a real person. Pliny the Younger, the Christians sing hymns to Christ as to a God. Josephus, well-known first century Jewish scholar and historian. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, and those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them after his crucifixion and that he was alive. And accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets had recounted wonders. So non-Christian historians, non-Christian historians, who not only did not have a vested interest in the Christian movement growing, but actually had a vested interest in the opposite. Non-Christian historians who lived within a lifetime of Jesus confirmed the biblical story of Jesus' death on a cross. They confirmed that after his death, the superstition of the resurrection seems to break out all over the known world. They confirmed that followers of Jesus began worshiping him as a god, and they confirm that the followers of Jesus, many of them, report to have seen Jesus alive. In fact, if you look at the Bible, I'll just show you a list of passages here. I won't read all of them. Uh, we don't have time to go into them in depth. These are all the various passages in the New Testament of the Bible where we are told real people see the real risen Christ after his death. If you do the math, and it's not hard, but if you do the math, you realize it's not two or three or a dozen. It is literally hundreds of people after Jesus' death claim to have seen him alive. Hundreds of people. Which is why we read from Tacitus that this superstition about the resurrection breaks out all over the known world. Because if it was one or two or a half dozen people who was like, no, I promise, I saw him, then there's no way it would have broken out all over the known world. Had Rome showed a body, he's not alive, look, there's his body, there's no way resurrection would have broken out all over the known world. So again, you don't have to believe what I believe. That's not the point here. 
I simply mean this, intend this, to ask a question. Is Easter the greatest con in history, or is it the fulcrum of history, the central point? Whoever you are, wherever you are on your faith journey, whatever brings you here today, Easter, again, is more than bunnies and brunches and pastel-colored eggs. It is a confrontation. I know you came uh, to get a nice Easter photo with your family and stuff, but um, this day meets you to confront you. It asks you a question. Is it true? In the Bible, in the New Testament, there are these four biographies. The first four books in what we call the New Testament, they're called Gospels. Gospel is just a fancy word that means good news. And the Gospels are biographies of Jesus written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in the fourth gospel, the final gospel, at the very end of the gospel is a story, the concluding story that concludes all of the gospel narratives. And what's interesting is the story isn't really about the resurrection, it's about what happens after the resurrection. It's the story of Jesus' disciples. Remember, during his three years on earth doing ministry, teaching, healing, and on and on, he had this small group of young men who would follow him around. They were learning from him. And this group of young men, Jesus' disciples, believed, they began to believe that Jesus might actually be like the chosen one, the Savior, the Messiah that God had promised to send to win victory over all of God's people's enemies and to usher in a new era of peace and prosperity. They began believing that about Jesus, and then all of a sudden, in a shocking twist, Jesus not only doesn't defeat the enemy, who they thought was the Roman Empire, he dies at the hands of the enemy. He's crucified on a cross. And so, these disciples have lost all hope. And the story tells us this. John 21, verses two to three. Simon Peter, most of us know him just as Peter. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, some of you know the story about the disciples. What did many of these men do before they started following Jesus three years earlier? They were fishermen. So what is happening here? They thought Jesus was gonna change everything, but now Jesus is dead and they've lost all hope. So what do they do? They just go back to the stuff they knew. It's like, well... I guess that was all a hoax. It was like all for naught. We wasted three years of our lives. Jesus is dead. Nothing's ever gonna change. This is resignation. These men are resigned to um, the cynicism, skepticism, and doubt that tells them things will always be the way they've always been. They've lost all hope. They doubt that anything can really change. They fish and they catch nothing. Skepticism and cynicism abound. Maybe this is you. Maybe you're here because somebody invited you. You're here on the promise of a wonderful brunch afterwards or whatever. You're not Christian. You're not religious. This is just kind of a family tradition thing to do. If that is you, I am thrilled you're here. And maybe in your doubt, in your skepticism, you are living resigned to the reality that nothing will ever change. Some days you catch some, some days you lose some, but what does it matter? Nothing's ever really gonna change. We live, we work, we die, and that's that. Maybe that is you. If that's you, man, I've been there. I'm with you. 
I understand why life can feel that way. But I wanna ask you a question. In your resignation, just for a few moments or a few days or a short season in your life, what would it look like to doubt your doubts? What would it look like to suspend your skepticism? What would it look like to live with a sort of childlike naivete and openness and wonderment at the possibility that things could be better? What would it look like to live open to the idea that a man could actually come back to life and that death might not actually be the end? The story continues, verses four to six. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he, Jesus, called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. If you know the disciples' story, you know that several years earlier, when Jesus had called these young men to follow him, to be his disciples, he had done so with several of them in this exact same way. These were young men who were fishermen, and one day Jesus, they'd never met him before, he walks up on shore, he's like, did you guys catch anything? No, we haven't caught anything. Cast your net again. They do it, and they catch so much fish, they don't know what to do with it. And Jesus does the same thing here. And in this moment, the disciples are snapped out of their resignation. It says that they didn't yet realize it was Jesus, right? They, they can't make out the, the blurry figure on shore. They hear his voice and they wonder. That voice sounds familiar. And then Jesus says, cast your net again. They catch so much fish and they realize, wait, but we don't have to be resigned to the reality that our great teacher is dead. Could that be him? And then the story continues, verses seven and eight. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, here's what's awesome about this line and about the Bible. This story of Jesus, this biography is written by John and who John is describing when he says the disciple whom Jesus loved is himself. So he's saying the disciple whom Jesus loved, me, I said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him, it heard him say, it is the Lord, what does Simon Peter do? He wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and he jumped into the water and the other disciples followed him in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. Far from shore is a relative term. If you're in the boat, maybe a hundred yards isn't that far, but Peter is not in the boat. He jumps out into the water. Here's the other thing you need to know. Peter, even though he was a fisherman by trade, he was not a swimmer. The reason I know this is because the Jewish people at the time especially, were, they did not swim. Any large body of water in Jewish tradition and the Jewish worldview is representative of death and chaos and destruction. And so Jewish people did not swim. And yet Peter suspends his fear. He suspends his lack of ability because all that matters now after realizing this is Jesus is to get to Jesus as fast as possible. This is the journey of both recognition and realization. This is where some of us are today. 
Maybe we've lived much of life resigned to the fact that nothing will ever change. Maybe we've lived cynical and skeptical and doubtful, like no hope. And yet, maybe lately something feels different. Maybe lately you've had experiences or moments in life that feel more than just coincidental. Maybe that's why you're here. Maybe skepticism is slowly giving way to curiosity. Maybe cynicism is slowly giving way to the vague possibility of hope. Maybe that's you or somebody you know. One thing I wanna invite you to, if this is you or someone you know, maybe you're not a Christian, you're not religious, but you are, you're curious now. Like, I think there is something more. I think there is, I can see a blurry figure on shore. I can hear a voice. I don't think everything is hopeless. That's you. We um, have a space here at our church called Discover Christianity. And I know it sounds like a sales pitch. It's really not. Discover Christianity is just a small group of people, men and women, just like you, who probably would not consider themselves Christian or religious, but they're open to the possibility of hope. And it's a safe place to come with all of your doubts, all of your skepticism. So if that's you or somebody you know, um, you can scan the little QR code in the chair in front of you and just click the button that says Discover Christianity and uh, we'll get you all the info you need and we'd love for you to join us in that space. It's facilitated by a leader here in our church, um, but it's really a place to bring your doubts, to ask questions and to dive deeper. And for some of us, maybe we've moved from recognition that hope is possible to realization. Maybe for some of us, the resurrected Christ is real to us in ways that very few things in life have ever been. When you're in this place of realization, your life is full of awe and wonder and gratitude. And what does Peter do in his moment of realization? When he realizes Jesus is alive and he is standing on that shore, he jumps into the water and he swims 100 yards to get to Jesus. So if that is you, full of wonder and awe and gratitude, if you're here because you would not miss this day for anything, because the resurrection is the center point of your life, it is your purpose and meaning and destiny, if that is you, I would encourage you, keep swimming. In certain points, your arms are gonna get heavy, your legs are gonna feel weak, but keep swimming anyways. Keep worshiping, keep gathering, keep on praying, keep studying the scriptures, keep loving, keep serving, keep giving, keep chasing after Jesus with everything you have. It is worth it. You are headed in the right direction. And don't do it alone. Steve Clifford, who is on our team and a mentor and a pastor to me, he's fond of saying the Christian life is not difficult alone, it's impossible alone. It's impossible alone. Let me show you a photo. This is a photo, I have permission from the parents to show this photo. This is a photo uh, in the foreground you see um, two sweet little kids. Those are uh, Leah and John Duffy, children of uh, my dear friends Gavin and Liz Duffy. And um, in the background, the blue hat is my friend Andy, and then Gavin is in the background. And this is last Sunday in our parking lot. We're all in a life group together, and Gavin is giving Andy a jump because Andy's car battery had died. Now, I'm not sharing this photo with you because if your car battery is dead after the service today, it's not like a prerequisite is that you're in a life group. 
That would be really weird if you're like, hey, can you give me a jump? And the person's like, you're not in my group, get out. You know, like call an Uber or something. That'd be really mean-spirited. That's not why I show you this photo. I show you this photo because this photo was shared on a text thread that I'm on with our life group. And on the thread, Andy's wife, Bianca, she wrote just a pithy little line that was just lighthearted, but to me it was so poignant. She said, hey, thank you, Gavin, for the jump. Life groups are a lifeline. That's what she wrote. Now, the reason I share that with you is because jumping a car battery is easy enough. We would all do it for each other. But what I know is that there are stories in our life group that I am not at liberty to share with you where we have been literal lifelines to one another where we have all tried to swim in the treacherous waters of life, chasing after Jesus, and there have been moments when arms have felt heavy and legs have gotten tired, and I've watched these men and women buoy one another up. And so if that is you, swimming hard after Jesus, don't do it alone. Whether it's a life group or something else, jump into community here. Finally, the story concludes this way. When they landed, the disciples, They saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, Peter said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Some of you know Peter's story. Just a few short days before this interaction with Jesus, Peter had stood also again by a different fire, a different charcoal fire. While Jesus was being arrested, tried, eventually he would be crucified and killed, Peter was standing outside in the courtyard, standing by a fire, when some people recognized him. And they asked him, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And fearing for his life, what did Peter do? He said, I don't know that man. And he said that three times. So the reason in this story why Peter is hurt when Jesus asks him a third time is because it is a reminder of his failure just a few short days earlier. But Jesus doesn't ask him three times, do you love me? Because he wants to dig in deeper into the wounds, the regrets, the shame, and the guilt Peter experiences. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me three times to restore Peter? Yeah, you denied me. Yes, you're ashamed. Yes, you have guilt. Yes, you have regret, but this is a clean slate. It's a fresh start. Do you love me? And no matter where you are today, whether you are resigned to a life of hopelessness or you are beginning to recognize the possibility of hope or you have realized that the resurrected Christ is real and everything changes, what is common and universal for all of us is that all of us in some form or fashion live with shame, guilt, regret, pain, hurt at the things we've done and the things that have been done to us. And I want you to know the resurrection of Jesus is about eternity with him forever, but it is also about restoring you now. You are free 
from the guilt, the shame, the regret. You don't have to carry it any longer. All Jesus asks you to do is respond. Wherever you are, Jesus invites a response from Peter. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Take care of my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed them, care, love, live an outward-facing life. Give yourself away and find freedom from the stuff that enslaves you inside is essentially what Jesus is saying. Maybe you've done things, again, or have had things done to you that saddle you with guilt and shame and regret. I want you to know the resurrection tells us Jesus sees you, he loves you, he wants to and can restore you. But as he does, he also invites you to respond, to live an outward life and to live beyond yourself. So where do you find yourself today? Resignation, recognition, maybe realization, maybe in need of restoration. Wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you're bringing into this room, my hope and prayer for you is that you may see the resurrected Christ standing on the shores of your life, beckoning you to new hope, new possibilities, and new life. I'm gonna invite Mark and Chris and the team to come back up, and we're gonna sing and respond. Um, you know, almost exactly 10 years ago, it was right around Easter of 2013, I'm laying in bed, and it's about six in the morning, and my cell phone rings. And I, nobody, you know, nobody ever calls that early. I look, and it's my mom. And she never calls me that early, so I'm wondering what is going on. So I answer the phone, and I can tell immediately something was wrong because she's quiet. And then finally, after sort of an uncomfortable silence, my mother, in a hushed voice, says to me, your father died last night. Now, some of you know my story. I did not have a relationship with my dad. My father was a stranger to me. My mother and my father um, had a very volatile relationship when I was really young. When I was two, my mother became a Christian and um, gave her life to Jesus and everything changed for her. She tried to ask my dad to consider Jesus as well, but my father spent the majority of his life um, wrestling with addiction, all sorts of demons that he could not shake and was living a destructive life, lived a destructive life most of his life. And so my mother, after a couple of years, decided this is not a safe environment in which, for me, in which I can raise my son, and so we left. So I grew up not knowing my dad. And so when my mother told me that my father had passed away, I felt numb. I didn't really feel anything. She asked me, do you want to go to the memorial service in Korea? He lived in Korea his entire life. So I said, I've got to think about it and talk to Jenny. So I hump the phone, and Jenny at this point was awake, and she was getting ready in the bathroom, and she peeks into the bedroom, and she says, hey, what's going on? Everything okay? And I spoke the words, my father died. And though he was a man I did not know, when I said those words, it was like three decades of pain and guilt and shame and regret bubbled up to the surface, and I just began to weep. In my mind, I didn't even know why. I didn't know what was happening. Long story short, 24 hours later, I find myself sitting in the airport terminal at SFO with my mother on our way to Korea. And a strange juxtaposition happened. I'm sitting in the airport, and I am grieving the fact that I am about to take this trip. 
I'm saddled again with guilt and shame and regret and pain and hurt. And in the airport terminal, there are all these other people, young families on their way to vacation, young people on their way to go back home and see loved ones. And while I'm sitting in the terminal grieving, these folks are sitting in the terminal excited, anticipating where they are headed. Because our future destination dictates our present disposition. So I hop on the flight, we get to Korea, I land, and we have this whirlwind of 48 hours. And the memorial service happens, and all of a sudden, a van pulls up, and the sliding door of the van opens, and out shuffles a number, about a half dozen men and women, and they're dressed in um, suits and dresses. And I notice that they are holding Bibles. And I come to realize during the memorial service that in the last several years of my father's life, this man I did not know, he had given his life to Jesus and gotten involved in this church. And they started telling me stories about how my father was a photographer and he would volunteer to take pictures during the service. They showed me some of the photos he would take for their church. And then 24 hours later, I'm at the airport in Incheon getting ready to fly back to San Francisco. And everything changed. Because sitting in that airport on my way back home, I realized that this man I did not know who was my father, though I did not know him on this side of eternity, I would know him forever someday. Because your future destination determines your present disposition. And your future hope determines your present purpose. If you know where the story is headed, then you can get through anything you face today. This is why the theologian N.T. Wright says that when Easter, Easter was when hope in person surprised the whole world by coming forward from the future into the present. This is why Paul writes in Philippians 3, I wanna know Christ, yes, to know him in the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. If you bring doubt and skepticism and uncertainty into this room. I'm with you, I get it, press on. There is hope for you, even if you cannot see it. If you are in a season of your life where you are beginning to recognize that this life may not be all that there is, press on, you are headed in the right direction. If you come here as a man or woman who has realized the truth of the resurrection, press on, because you're right. Christ is alive, and he's alive now and forever, and you can be too in Jesus. If you come here with regret and pain and guilt and shame, press on. Restoration is possible. Jesus died, not just so that you can live forever on the other side of the grave. He died so that you can live full and whole and healed today. That's the resurrection. Jesus is alive, Christ is risen, it is the fulcrum of history, everything has changed.
new life is possible. And it's yours if you want it. Amen? Let's stand and sing together.